is Klaus Wastel, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. You're listening to the business of extraordinary experiences. My guest this episode is Torres Wilhelmsen. And Torres, well, all of my guests are extraordinary, but Torres is especially so. Torres works in escape rooms, but he does something more unusual than that. He teaches people how to work together using spaceships. And that not only sounds cool, it is cool. Torres, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Klaus. So, Tos, let's start with the escape rooms. What's your formal title? Uh, my formal title is technical game designer. Technical game designer at what's it called? Escaperoom.dk, something like that. Uh, it's actually called Escape Rooms by Midgard Event. Just escape to keep rooms it short. By Midgard Event. There, we also have some nice product placement. It's a nice company that does amazing stuff. Tos, tell me about your daily work, not in like grindy detail. But, but what is it you do as a technical game designer for Escape Room? Well, for the most part, I actually do maintenance. We do a lot of maintenance, and I, I, for, I oversee maintenance. Uh, and that is making sure things that are broken get fixed, but also looking at, does the game do what we want? So sometimes we also make adjust, adjustments to game design, uh, which is a part of maintenance. So we maintain the physical properties, and we maintain the game design. And escape rooms are, for a lot of our listeners, they'll be familiar with escape rooms, but mostly on the, the kind of the customer side. Because while the escape room industry is booming and has been for some years, it's still pretty small. So as you've been part of that journey, tell me a little bit about being on the other side. When a drunken bachelor party comes in and has booked an escape room because some friends told them this would be a good idea. Tell me about that. Uh, well, it's, it's as, as we have a lot of young hopeful, especially role players coming to want to be a game master at us. And we, and they tell us, and I used to be a game master at Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And we tell them it's more important that you worked in a netto than that you worked, uh, at, that you try to be a game master because it's a service job and it's handling drunk people. It's handling business customers that are late and think it's their privilege. Um, to the very extreme where we have people peeing in buckets or someone uh, just tearing in a door yelling, you're bad friends and this is a shitty experience and uh, wanting to leave the room before time. So I have two, I have three takeaways from that right off the bat that we're going to dive a little bit deeper into. One is it's smarter to have worked in a supermarket than have worked in role-playing if you want an escape room job is what you're telling me. And I understand yes. that. That makes a lot of sense. So that's takeaway number one. I think that is is an eye-opener for some people out there with their dreams of, of transferring from their hobby to a dream job, which in some ways probably is, and in others, I'm sure it's not. Number two is people pee in buckets. Let's. I'm not going to say unwrap that a little because that sounds gross, but uh, give me a few more drips of that. Drips? Really? Okay. 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 Sorry. Yes. Uh, tell me more. Well, it, it happened twice. It's one of our props. Uh, you're in an old gentleman's saloon. Uh, there's a poker table. There's what you'd expect for a 1902 uh, gentleman's saloon. There's also a fireplace with a bucket with firewood in it. And it's actually happened twice that people even though they're told they should signal the game master if they're in distress, they were like, yeah, but we were very busy and there was a bucket. I took out the wood first. So, so they're nice and polite about it. 
Yes, and they are also very nicely, politely told that they clean up uh, the bucket <laughs> themselves. One, one, one person peed in a bottle once. He was told to just bring that with him. But that's nice. I mean, a bottle is something you control yourself. It's not, or was it one of your prop bottles? No, it was, uh, we're one of the only escape rooms in the world, probably, that allow people to bring beverages inside. So. And I guess that sometimes that decision is regretted. Yes. <laughs> but some of these bachelor parties, doesn't matter if they could have a few beers at our place because they already been going. But it, it raises some interesting discussions, and I want to touch on that a little bit later, about the, the limit on fiction and where's the border between reality and fiction and this sort of fictional experience that an escape room is. But first, let's, let's talk about the third one, which is people storming to the door and saying, you're terrible friends, I hate this experience. How often does that happen? Uh, this was a one time off. Um, really, it was a bachelor party. They normally went to strip clubs for their uh, bachelor parties. But one of the guys wanted to try something else. And the, the groom in the middle of the thing just he went over and he i'm not sure there was only alcohol involved uh, and we had to kindly ask all of them to leave because they were in a state where we couldn't let them play so it was a very extreme case crazy enough and i guess that's also a, a thing that you guys have to deal with is that when you do these embodied experiences where people come in and kind of not just sit in front of a screen or watch a, read a book or something like that, but like play with their bodies, take themselves into the fiction. You have to deal with the fact that some of them are probably going to be ignoring your rules like crazy. That I guess it doesn't say yes. in your rules, yes, please be crazy as drunk, but you sometimes have to deal with that anyway because people are people. Yes. Uh, I can relate it. One of the very interesting escape room venues in Berlin, which we just visited uh, earlier this month or last month, uh, they simply have a room that bachelor parties, they, they can't, um, they can't do the rooms. Uh, they can't book if you say you're from bachelor party. And if you show up and you look like a bachelor party, you will uh, be kindly asked to leave and get a refund. Uh, and they also, I tell you that more than half of our customers are business customers. That's a huge part of our um, business fundament. Uh, they don't accept business customers as well because business customers, they don't play. They don't know how to play. So like in the Danish word, lie. Oh, that's uh, interesting. So they're not, they don't even want them there. Uh, and we're like, well, it's a mainstay of our business. But in their eyes, well, they don't know how to have fun. They don't know how to... Um, or at least not in the proper way. Yeah, or the way... The they want them to. So that's it's just like, we're not having those guys. It's just off. And we're dealing with often trying to have 40 people. We're one of the largest escape room venues in Europe. And we're dealing with having 40 business people where, you know, five people thought that was a good idea. And then we have to engage all of them in the story because we're very focused on storytelling. And we have to get them into the game and also respect the game and respect the game master, even though they're dressed up in costumes. I, I understand that challenge and, and coming from a role-playing background with we've sometimes had events with hundreds of people where we need to do exactly as you say mm -hmm. that somebody five people thought it was a good idea but everybody else is now there and you need to engage them and make sure it works and make sure they work together and that everybody's respectful while still mm -hmm. actually having fun and maybe even learning something 
So I, uh, I feel your pain on that one. What are what are tools to, to kind of to give it to people in a format that's easy for them? What are three things that you've learned from working in the escape room business that you think everybody would be happier as human beings if they knew? What are like three insights that you've learned that you wish everyone else knew? Everyone else knew or everyone working with experiences knew? No. Let's let's stick to everyone working with experiences, but that's a nice uh um then I would say um present your narrative, but don't enforce it on people because mm-hmm. you're getting nowhere with that. Uh when you make a story, try not to look at what story are we telling, but what story are they experiencing? Which is not always the same. No, I agree. No, not. And we actually have a few where we, we changed our manuscripts and our stories simply to when you look at it from that perspective, like, oh, wait, the story isn't that great when you look at it from the player's perspective, actually. We were telling, oh, yes, yes. We were telling a good story, but the, the, the players were not experiencing a good story, so we changed it. That was two. Um, people are stupid is the third one. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll let that one uh, stand alone while uh, we can kind of do the drones. If you don't mind, uh, one example? Yes, give me one, please. You can have rules. There's rule for interactions, both personal and physical. And then you say, please don't move any of the large furniture and people move a piano. And you're like, I'm sorry, that's against the rules. No, we just pushed it. We didn't we move didn't it. We didn't move it. We just pushed it. So what you're essentially saying is that people will try to they will they will go to the the edges of the rules or the fiction and they'll try to bend it or work around it or strain it mm-hmm. where they, and then they'll try to justify it afterwards. Yes, definitely. And one more thing I felt like I noticed, but this is more this is not uh, data. This is more feeling. The more people are immersed or accept the um, the narrative or they immerse themselves or accept the rules of the game, the more likely they are to take care of things and the less they want to immerse themselves, the more likely it is they're just going to move pianos or break props or something like that. That makes sense. And to our listeners out there, uh, sorry, since there's coronavirus on, we are all working from home. And in my case, that means there's a two-year-old toddler who is not super happy about the concept of dad working in a locked office. So if you hear children crying in the background, it's uh, not because Tools and I are running a shady interview. It's <laughs> sadly just reality poking in on our small magic circle here. Indeed. Okay. Um, but no, that is a really, really good point. And let me use that to segue into one of the other things that you've done and still do that, that I find super interesting. Tell me about spaceships. Yes, as I sometimes say, I used to be a spaceship captain, but now I'm a man of international mystery. Um, but hawking back to my spaceship captain days, and we, we actually still run this, uh, is that me and a couple of friends, we built an escape room experience on top of some American software. And um, we're using this as 
leadership training and uh, com- and for communication workshops. So, so paint a little bit of a more detailed picture here. When you say some American software, I'm I'm familiar with it, but most of our listeners won't be. So, so tell me, what does this look like? What what does an, an team building spaceship experience look like in this case? So the thing is that people will come onto the spaceship bridge and take on roles as specialists. That means that almost everyone gets their own computer, which does one job. There will be a pilot, there will be a weapon officer, communication officer, engineer, and science officer. And they will each handle one part of the operational business of running a spaceship, turning the spaceship, parallel parking, shooting enemies, and and these things. And there will be a sixth person who doesn't have a computer, but will have the responsibility of running the spaceship, a.k.a. the captain. So essentially, it's a six-person multiplayer experience played on six computers, and you could be in different rooms, but you could also be in the same room. That's what you do. Yes, we do it. with. We have a physical setup where people sit by large um, touchscreens, and there's some lighting that, uh, that underlines the, uh, the effect and the experience. And it's what you call asymmetrical game design. So you, there are five persons with computers, but they don't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they cannot complete, complete any of their specific tasks alone. So the pilot can't actually look out the window and can't look on a map. The pilot needs a, a science officer to look at the map for them and communicate directly between them. Got it. Uh, is like, where are we going? How do I get there? So what I normally say is that we cut the communication cake in very uneven pieces and handed them out. And that is, yeah. No, no, go on, go on. And that is the real challenge of the game. You put six people in the same room, you give them specialist uh, tasks that they they have to have, to have the responsibility for, but they can't solve any of them completely without the help of others. And that's also why you have a team leader in the room that doesn't have a computer, doesn't have a specialist station, but should be able to coordinate their team. And tell me how that works when you come out to a corporation, because you've done this like a lot, and you've done some pretty amazing setups with literally hundreds of people at the same organization learning how to fly spaceships. Mm -hmm. Well, we have our setup with this computer network that we come out and set up, and uh, we... um, check up with the venue to make sure that we have all the chairs and, and uh, tables that's going to be there. And then we make a spatial design that makes sure that people sit close enough so they can speak with each other, but they can't see each other's um, screens. And often we work together with a consultancy company who had made some learning points for the day or some specifics. Some even had their own spaceship missions, their own adventures that we made bespoke for them so that they will train specific things in their um, in what they have agreed that this uh, workshop should teach them or something. So it can be delegation or top management. We, we specifically sometimes trained what, what does it feel like having to have everything go through a headquarters. So we took two ships two meeting rooms that is set up like a spaceship, but they can't communicate. They have a walkie-talkie to the headquarters, and the headquarters have to uh, coordinate everything between those two 
rooms. Oh, that's effective in a way of showing that how ineffective that is, I would assume. Yes. It's super frustrating. Uh, and, and, and this particular organization is exactly how they run their business. They have one great headquarters, like HR. None of their, I think it's 23 offices around Denmark have their own HR uh, employee. They're all located in Copenhagen. So just getting your uh, vacation uh, okayed, you have to contact someone in Copenhagen. If you have this contract that you really want to ship off to your customer, it has to be okayed in Copenhagen. So you make two, spa- two spaceships and a fleet command that kind of shows two different departments that have to work together, but they have to okay everything through oh. a headquarters. Oh, but that's yep. Tell me of some of the responses to this, because I know that when you guys have done this for some of these big corporate clients, they are over the moon with excitement, but also pretty impressed at the results. Tell me of some of the some of the feedback you've gotten on this. I mean, both the pos- positive and negative. I, I would have to say we don't we don't have a lot of negative feedback afterwards, but we have a lot of people coming in like uh, very comes like. Computer games, that's something my children play. Or computer games, that's something my grandchildren play. Um, there are sometimes, afterwards, I can, let's start with the critique. It's sometimes hard if you don't work really focused on it to get people to step out of the fictional world because they get immersed. They are in within 20, 30 minutes. There are very few non believers afterwards. Even I can tell you some of the stories of the most most antagonistic person who came around, but in their own way. Um, but you have to focus on the talk, the reflection afterward. It's not nuclear missiles and engineering posts, but you have to relate it to the business you're in. So you have to have a very focused reflection and discussion afterward to make sure that you bring the learnings home. So you get the transfer done right. So it's not just, yes, it was fun learning how to blow up Gorgons. Yeah, yeah. How does that help me to lead a division? Yeah, we should we should have uh, we should have loaded those faster or we should have uh, gone to help them shoot that thing. Like, yeah, but why didn't you do it? What was the process? Why did yeah. you not make that decision? Uh, I had one group where they raced straight into some mines, they exploded and died, and we had to restart. And then one of them was, that was my fault. I should have looked where I was flying. And then the scanner officer was, no, no, it was my fault because I should told you where it was. And then the weapons officer took responsibility. And then everybody else, to, in the end, they didn't figure anything out because they all said, I'm sorry, guys, it was my fault. I'll do better. But that's all they agreed on. That was doing better, not yeah, what they were going no. to do differently, just yeah, doing yeah. better. So they actually... By by being super great team, quote unquote, by taking a lot of responsibility, they got nowhere. That's an interesting piece of learning that uh, yeah. I, I want us to reflect on that a little bit because what I hear you saying it, it, it resonates is that if you're too focused on kind of taking responsibility for the team, and if everybody does that, nobody's going to say no. Hence, it was actually your fault because you you did this wrong, and here's how you could do it next time. If everybody's just saying, oh, it was my bad, and we should all do better, because as you say, better is not, it's pretty vague, and you don't necessarily learn anything from it. We all agree, hopefully, to do better all the time. The problem is we don't know how to do it better. 
And that's why we need workshops to to learn how to what to do to become better. Otherwise, it's just it's just empty air. And I think as most people agree that if something uh, error happens, it doesn't have a lot of value to place blame. Oh, I, I think it was definitely Klaus's fault, or maybe Anita's fault. And people are like that's not constructive. But then if everybody's saying it was definitely my fault, it seems positive because now people are claiming responsibility instead of we're blaming someone. But it's actually just the blame game in reverse. Mm-hmm. So you get the exact amount of nothing out of it. Oh, I like. I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's interesting. Thanks. Let's talk about the positive. Let's talk about some of the people who've come out and said, "Yes, give me more, give me more spaceships, give me more game-based learning." Not, not just to kind of toot your horn. That's nice enough. But some of the stuff where people have been able to kind of see it on a broader scale. Uh, I think for for my part, it's especially as someone who's often a subcontractor, I I find it very interesting when we have consultants on this project um, that never worked with gaming before. And they're always, okay, so we're going to do something with spaceships. Like one of the senior consultants loves this shit and he says it's the greatest. I'm a little bit skeptical because I'm not a gamer. I'm not from a gaming background. And then from their first session, just standing there watching people interact and how much becomes obvious, they're almost always blown away. Like, this is a crazy tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah I recognize that. I, I thought they was just pushing buttons and, you know, blowing stuff up and it was going to be a fun afternoon. But, whoa, the dynamics and how people forget that we are here as a consultant, how they forget themselves sometimes and their professionalism as soon as they just get a little bit pressured because there's happening five things at once, which is sometimes hard to simulate if you don't use a computer, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, I, I sometimes say personally, I think it's a great analytic tool. You can see a lot of things, but you don't learn from the tool itself. You have to take the analysis, put it in a new context, and then learn from that. And that's why you need good consultants on it as well. But that that converting almost every skeptical process consultant that comes in contact with this, that is one of my, uh, it's like one of my favorite things about this. I like that. And and I think there's also a lot of truth in what you say that a general thing with gamified learning is that for a lot of it, it's a good tool, but if you don't have the proper reflection and analysis afterwards, then it loses a lot of its power that it's, it's, you can learn a ton from playing civilization but you learn even more if somebody can tell you what it is you're learning and somebody mm. can see it. So, so I like that. Give me, before we, we, uh, we leave the spaceships for a moment, tell me about your weirdest moment in your corporate spaceship career that you're allowed to talk about, of course. I know there are some deep, dark secrets buried, but let's, uh, no, I don't know that, but it sounds so traumatic. And mm. to be fair, every event-based company has some really crazy stories they're not going to tell. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, there are several. I, I like to touch down upon two because you, there was actually one unanswered question. That was the whole with the headquarters thing. When they have oh, yeah. two ships in a headquarter, it's interesting to see how many people uh, either say, okay, we're just going to do exactly what headquarters says, not not seeing what's in front of them and just blindly doing what headquarters says and then failing. 
but also just as many times where a single ship is like, fuck headquarters, we know better, we're going to do something else. And then after, afterwards, when everything failed, and they were like, but it seemed like the better idea. Yes, but did you inform headquarters that you took another decision? No. Why are they messing with things? So <laughs> That is fun. Or wait, no, it's actually not, but it's, it's, it is, the story it, is fun. It was the correct decision to go against what headquarters says. They just for, forgot the feedback. They just forgot to tell them. It sounds like, thanks, headquarters, for your input. We're going to do something else. And see how the whole house of cards topples because they just missed that important part of telling them they were not going to do what they said. So anticipation, like, uh, uh, not anticipation. Um, the idea of what people thought were going on went out the window and then they couldn't act anymore. It, it narrowed their room for action into such a small area that, that they failed. Not because of their lack of actions, but their lack of communication. But I have one story that I think is very interesting also to generate it to the experience uh, and how people perceive the world. We had this small event when we used to have our uh, uh, physical setup in our own location. Small company coming in, and we have um, this ladies in her mid-50s, early 50s, I would say, um, a little bit posh. I think she might be working in uh, in accounting. And she comes in and see the spaceship and she's very, oh, computer games. This is going to be such a long day. And uh, my colleague and partner, Christian, was like, you know what? It's not going to be a problem. We're going to sit you here at the engineering station and you don't actually have to do anything at all. And the others won't notice and you won't fuck anything up. If you do want to participate and make some things a little better for the others, you can turn up this button when they're turning and then just turn it down then and you don't have to do anything else. And then, okay, okay, she could do that. And we started the game and we explained uh, everybody else was having fun. And at some point, my friend Kamoa again says, so if you do want to learn some more, you could learn what these two buttons does because that could help you hear where they're frustrated about this. These two buttons could help. I, I better learn about those then. And she learned about those two buttons. And the, the next time she called him over and says, so what does uh, these last four buttons do? <laughs> they do this. Five minutes later than that, she's holding her console, this physical uh, spaceship console sitting at, pointing at the other participant and yelling, we need to come about so we can fire the missiles. Come on, guys, we need to get them. <laughs> completely immersed, completely driven in but then after the event my friend comes over and says oh so it wasn't that bad no no it's fun so computer games can be fun oh no no computer games are awful this was a learning game that's different ah so she kept her belief system intact but allowed a small loophole for the experience she was having completely she just denied our reality and substituted for her own but she still learned stuff, which is nice. But, she learned uh, stuff, and she had fun, and she was a great engineer. Uh, not Scotty, not George, but a uh, great engineer. So let's talk for a moment about when you're not a happy camper, when the frustration breaks, when it's all just, ah, and you want to kick the wall or slap the customers around or piss in their buckets. 
Mm-hmm. When, when do you get frustrated and annoyed? And when is this, when is your chosen profession just uh, the wrong one? I, I get really frustrated when something that can really irritate me is like we have some pictures that are the, just there for decoration and we want to make immersive rooms and make it um, good looking. And we put up some pictures and we tape them. And every time people take the tape off and then we glue them and it's obvious now they're not as pretty anymore because now it is obvious glue, but we have to use a lot of glue to not, not because it won't hold, but to communicate. I'm not supposed to be taken off. (laughs) So there is an adhesive layer of glue and then there's the communicative layer of glue. And there's probably two of those layers. And and it just frustrates me that people can't, I mean, think of, it's maybe because they don't play, maybe because they don't immerse themselves and look at the room and says, maybe that blackboard over there where there are pecs in them, that is obviously a, uh, a, a puzzle because why would you put pegs in a blackboard if not to use them for something? And here are some, some wooden bricks with holes in them. This is probably a puzzle, but this picture of the kernel that we heard about in the story that has obviously modern glue on it, we're not supposed to sit and pull out all that glue. That is obvious. Not, and, and, and for other people like tools, you're demanding too much of the customers. They're just customers. And I'm like, am I really demanding that much from human beings? I mean, don't pull out the glue out. I, it's, it breaks my mind. I, I can't wrap my head around it. Why? I hear the underlying frustration is that you get annoyed when people can't tell the difference between decoration and function. That is one thing, but it also comes down to like, because if it was not obvious, I, I would examine if there was not any indicator that you shouldn't pull the, the, the picture apart, I might do that myself if I was playing. But even when there is hot glue and you pull out all the hot glue, or if you're told not to touch the electric installations and you unwind the bulb and you stick your finger into the lamp, I'm like, <laughs> we have, can I, can I tell you a secret? Me and millions of others. Yes. Just yes. two of us. We have one cupboard in one of our rooms, which people repeatedly ask me to put some screws in so it can't topple over. And I'm saying there, it's there to topple over to do the world a favor. <laughs> and of course, for all of you out there, especially towards his boss, Christian, he's not trying to murder the customers. He just wants to. Tools, before we get to the housekeeping and the end of this, you've been designing experiences way before you got into spaceships or escape rooms. Give yes. me in three easy tips the collected wisdom of Tolls Wilhelmsen. No pressure. Ask your participants what it really is that they want. Because when you give them that, they will be much more uh, immersed. Tip number one. Very good. And when you design a narrative, 
I spoke on this earlier. When you assign a narrative, don't look at what narrative, don't look at what story are you telling. Go into the participant's place and see what are they experiencing. And if you want later, I can come back with an example of that. Um, and third, make sure you think it's a fun story to tell too, because if you want to make a business out of it, you are going to tell that story a hundred thousand times. So if you think it's lame, you can't deliver it. I, I think that's actually a supremely good point. And, and I have a Peter, a friend who I work with on our H.C. Anderson project, and he did the H.C. Anderson short story called The Tinderbox. And he did that as a theater play and played the soldier 783 times on stage. And my first thought was, wow, you must have said those lines a lot of times. Didn't you hate that at the end? He said, no, no, it, I, I liked it. But I guess what you're saying is that if you start out by hating the Tinderbox play, and then you play it 783 times, you're going to hate it a lot more at the end and yourself. After. Yes. But if you love those lines to begin with, you will love seeing them 100, 700 times. I like that. Towards here at the end, we have a little bit of housekeeping. And the mm -hmm. first is if people want to find you offline, they should go to Copenhagen and Denmark. But if they want to find you online, do you have a presence, so to speak? Um, that would only be my LinkedIn. You can uh, professionally, you're more than welcome to contact me uh, through LinkedIn. Um, and if you can't find me, go to Klaus's profile and we are connected there. <laughs> we'll also put it in the show notes. Or when I say we, I mean Vanna, my producer will do it. I'm not going to do anything. But Vanna, who makes this actually work, will put it in the show notes. Thank you, Vanna. Okay, so that's if people want to find you. You're on LinkedIn. And if you want to find the company, Escape Room by Milko Event. Uh, Escape Room by Milko Event is just escaperoom.dk. It's pretty um, easy to find. Yes. Now we have come almost to the end, which is always my both favorite part and uh, the part I dread a little bit out of irrational fear, where you get to control the podcast for a moment. So is there anything that I've forgotten to ask you or anything you want to add or a shout out you want to give to the world or a manifesto you want to spout? Now is your time. Now, I'd actually like to give that example on the when now because I said it yes, two times. Uh, what yeah. is is Another that time. when we designed our outbreak escape room, it's about you trying to find a cure for a uh, global pandemic. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but no, it must be really hard to relate to right now. That's our narrative. Um, we uh, we wanted, of course, to have our um, players to be the heroes of this story. And at first, when we decided it, it's the, it was, we were touring with the idea that it was a terrorist that somehow made the disease and now gave the players a chance to uh, find the cure and fix the problem. And in a way, that makes them the heroes of the story, right? It's actually a classic. It's uh, Die Hard 4 has some of this theme. But then again, when you look at it from the player's perspective, they're just puppeteers dancing to this antagonist tune. Mm -hmm. 
And we didn't want that when we thought about it like that. Wait, but then how do we make our games? So, because why are they coming into a laboratory where everything is locked and they have to open all these lockers if it's their laboratory and it's not the antagonist's laboratory? So we came up with the idea that there is this pandemic and the official solution is just to firebomb the whole place. But you and the two key game masters, fun enough, won't um, stand for that. So you decided to break into the secret laboratory where this where this whole thing got away from in the first time, in the first place. And you have to break in, continue the research, and finish the cure. And now, instead of dancing to some terrorist tune and just being puppets in his game, you're actually taking charge of the story and being the proactive part. So we had to rework our narrative to make sure that our players were actually the main characters and not just puppets. So you didn't change the experience very much, but you did change the framing quite a bit. Yes. Yes. And I think that's a perfect uh, thing to round off on is that it's often we're so focused on changing reality while sometimes we can get even further and cheaper and faster with changing perception or changing framing. So that's a, a very nice tip to round off on with a beautiful pandemic story attached, artfully done tools. And it also means we have reached the end, not of the pandemic, sadly. That's nowhere in sight. No, it is just no. blue or uh, just water with blue uh, fruit, uh, fruit <laughs> color in, unfortunately. So sadly, it, it's not fixing the real pandemic. We're also not at the end of whatever kind of the end looks like, but we are at the end of this episode of the podcast. To all our listeners out there, you've been listening to the Business of Extraordinary Experience. You heard Torsten Hansen and me, your host, Klaus Rusty. Thank you for listening.